We, we all know what it feels like to be tired, right? Some of you are tired right now as you come in this morning. Some of the rest of you will grow more and more tired during the course of this sermon. Try to hold out if you can. But have you ever gotten to that kind of tired, that kind of weariness where you find yourself thinking things like, maybe even saying things like, I can't do this anymore. Have you ever gotten to that point where you're so tired of the fight, the struggle? Maybe it's in a dispute with family members. Maybe it's in a marriage Maybe it is a a physical problem as you deal with a disobedient or rebellious or a prodigal child. Maybe in business or financial struggles, have you ever gotten to the point where you just say, "I, I can't, I'm just so tired. Yeah, there's there's tired and then there's that. That weariness of soul that pushes us to the brink of desperation or despair. And what makes matters worse is that fatigue always makes us vulnerable. Physical fatigue makes us vulnerable to injuries or accidents. We know, at least we're told, that driving a vehicle when you're super, super tired can be as dangerous as driving one intoxicated. Fatigue makes us vulnerable. Spiritual fatigue makes us vulnerable too. It makes us vulnerable to temptation, um, to, to, to failure, stuff that we feel like, like, I don't care what the consequences are, I've just got to... And then before long, we, it, we have just heaped regret on top of whatever that was that made us so tired to begin with. Fatigue makes us vulnerable. Peter, in fact, just a verse or two before what we read a minute ago before the singing time. Peter said this about our enemy, Satan. He said, be alert, Christians. Be of sober mind. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This this is such an effective metaphor. Because what kind of animals do lions tend to eat? I don't mean what kind of, what, what species. Like when they're hunting wildebeests or gazelles or whatever. Which individual animals do they tend to pick out of the herd? Right? Is it the ones like the old Far Side cartoon? You've seen the one where the lions are looking at a gazelle out there and it says turbo down the side of them. And the one lion says, don't even think about chasing those guys, right? That's not the ones lions chase. They chase the weak, the weary, the isolated, the sick, the one that can't continue. Family, the devil's like a lion. He doesn't play fair. Life makes us sick 
and tired. We get fatigued. It makes us vulnerable. And the devil pounces. I think. I can't be 100% certain today. Dogmatic is the term for that. But I think it's what we see in David today. We're going to see that David is fatigued. He's so bone weary, tired. That I think he falls into some really serious sin. Now I can't be dogmatic about that because... We're never going to be told. We're going to read some things that David does and we're, God's not even going to be mentioned. And the narrator's never going to tell us that what David does is either right or wrong. We have to decide that for ourselves. And so that's what we're going to do first this morning. We're going to read this and, and I want you to know uh, opinions vary on this. My two now two favorite commentaries on 1 Samuel disagree in their sort of value judgments of David in this chapter. One says what David does is is justified, and another one says that David's in sin today. So what we're going to do first is read this, and I want you to decide what you think. Is David okay, or has David, David failed? Is he in sin? Let's read first, 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're going to read all of 27 and the first two verses of 28, I think, go better with this passage. So we'll take them today. 1 Samuel 27, 1. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul, or literally I will be swept away by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and i that's how I will escape from Saul's hand. Verse 2, so David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so Saul no longer searched for David. Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country, that I may live there. For why should your servant, or why should I live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave David Ziklag that day, And that's why Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Jeshurites and the Jerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come from Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he took away their sheep and cattle and donkeys and the camels and the clothing. Then David would return and come to Achish. Verse 10. Now Achish said, where where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the uh, Jerameelites and against the Negev of the Kenites. 
David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, otherwise they will tell, us, uh, they will tell about us, saying, so David has done, and so has been his practice all the time he's lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, David has surely made himself odious among his people Israel, and therefore he will become my servant forever. Now chapter 28. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay, so what do you think? Is David more right or more wrong in that story? Before I give you an answer, I want to give you a a principle when you're reading biblical narrative. Narrative just means when we're being told a story in the Bible, like Paul's letters aren't narratives, they're they're letters, they're epistles. Uh, They'll... um, a narrative is like 1 Samuel. It's a story, the Gospels, the book of Acts. Here's, here's the principle to keep in mind when you're reading biblical narrative. Narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. Here's what that means. When we're reading a story, we're being described stuff that happened, but everything that's described isn't prescribed for us as being okay. Does that make sense? Like in this book, like right now, we read in this chapter, David has more than one wife. Is that described for us? Yes. Is that prescribed as okay for us? No. Um, James and John one time asked Jesus for permission to call down fire out of heaven to burn up people who were mean to them. That's definitely described, but it's not cool, right? Descriptive not prescriptive. So, in my opinion, and that's all this is right now, but in my opinion, if we read that story we just read and believe that David is in the right, I think it's because we have a want, a desire, maybe even a need for what David does to be right. We, David's the hero. David's the good guy. David wears the white hat. But nothing's right simply because it's David who does it. I'm convinced that David falls into some extremely serious sin here, as serious as any sin he ever sins. Others, like I said, disagree with me though. Uh, A man named Dr. Robert Bergen uh, who writes a fantastic commentary on this book. He loves the Lord. He believes the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. He knows more about Hebrew narrative than I ever will, for sure. He thinks David is justified. He's like accidentally obedient here. I'll explain that more in a minute. But I think if anyone else but David did this, there would be no debate. Let's look more closely at what happens here. Then we'll see what we can learn. As as this passage opens, David's fatigue is like palpable. If you've been following along through the story of David, David and his men have been on the run for their lives from Saul for 
who knows how long. Like every day, they're running for their lives. And David is so tired, they need rest. These men have families, at least most of them, that probably can't stay with them. Who knows what's happening to them? Who knows what Saul would do if he got his hands on my family? David is so tired, and I don't blame him at all for for deciding he needs some rest. He just wants to get away from being pursued. So in verse 1, we get a peek inside some self-talk by David. David says to himself, Self, one of these days I'm going to be swept away by the hand of Saul. Is that true? Is David going to be killed by King Saul if he stays where he's at? No. How do we know? Because God has promised David is going to be king And dead guys don't make great kings, as a general rule. Has God given David any evidence to suggest he plans to keep that promise for David to survive? Yes, over and over and over. David's fatigue has infected his thinking. His fatigue has led him to start thinking, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to die, which isn't True, And David does something that Israel has a long family history at doing. Asking foreigners to protect them when God said God would protect them. This is a family tradition. So David says, there's nothing better I can do than to go ask the Philistines. He asks for asylum here, is what he does. That's David's self-talk. I'm going to die if I stay here. And so I'm going to take matters in my own hand. I'm going to go ask the Philistines to protect me. Do you remember what David has ordinarily done in this book when it came to time for a big decision? Over and over, we've read of him seeking the Lord. He's got a priest with him with the, little, with the, with the breastplate and the urim and the thummim. We don't read of David seeking the Lord and asking God, is this what you want? His fatigue infects his thinking. He takes matters into his own hands and he asks someone else to do a better job of protecting them than God has been doing lately. You know, the the kind of self-talk David needs is like what shows up from a different psalmist. Psalm 42 and 43, which is originally one poem. David needs self-talk like this. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Sometimes we need to talk to ourselves. Why are you in despair? Why have you become disturbed within me? Because I'm so tired. I'm tired of this. Right? We need to ask ourselves that honestly. And then we need to tell ourselves this. Hope in God. Not the Philistines. For I shall again praise him. For the help of his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair with me. That's why I'm going to remember you. That's what David needs. David needs self-talk like his buddy Jonathan gave him. Encouragement like his brother, his buddy Jonathan gave him back in chapter 23. When Jonathan came to David, when David was on the run and said, David, don't be afraid. 
because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. You will be king over Israel. And I'll be, I'm right here with you, buddy. And Saul, my father, knows this is true. Also. That's what David needs. But he's just so tired. Now, that being said, I think it's very possible had David sought the Lord, God might have sent him to the Philistines. Both of these things can be true. God is going to save David, and David really might need a break. He might really need some rest. Had he sought the Lord and said, God, I'm thinking of moving to Philistia for a while. I don't want to do this if it's not what you want. Is that okay? It's very possible God might have, had, might have arranged this all along. It sure seemed to work out well for David as far as getting a break goes. Because David, he goes to, uh, well, this guy we'll call him Achish, uh, the king of Gath, the ruler of that city, and, and he is received well. And Saul calls off the pursuit of David. Do you think that was a good day when David finally realized he is not hunting me? David got to live with his, with his family. His men got to have their families. They got to live in some peace with some privacy. And it even got better when David went to uh, the king of Gath and said, Hey, I don't think we should live here anymore. You have been very hospitable. We appreciate it. But there's hundreds and hundreds of us. We don't want to be a strain on your hospitality. Will you tell us someplace else to go and live? Someplace out in the country uh, that you choose? And we'll foot our own bill. We'll take care of ourselves. And Achish says, yeah, why don't you go out to this? Ziklag would be a good place for you. You move out there. You can just have that city as yours. Um, David and his men, they lived there a, a year and four months, 16 months. They live out there in relative peace with their families. What a rest. It's a great time. And by the way, I'll tell you, uh, that we're getting, this little parentheses we're given, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this very day. For time's sake, we won't, but if we would go back into the book of Joshua, Ziklag is a city that Israel was supposed to have taken 400 years prior. And they didn't in disobedience. And so there's one way to, to read what David does here is he's restarting the conquest of Canaan, uh, doing what Israel never did but was supposed to. Um, so David gets the city of Ziklag and, and Israel just never gave it back all those days. Okay, so David gets a rest, a break, some peace. And again, I think this could have been God's plan to provide him that all along. We just can't know. But the problems start in verse 8. Well, the problems continue, I guess, in verse 8. When David starts, I say he starts pirating the pirates. In verse 8, uh, we're told that David and his men begin to go up against. That means fight against, make war against. Um, isolated bands from three people groups, the Jeshurites, the Jerzites, and the Amalekites. Apparently Saul did not wipe out all the Amalekites back in chapter 15. 
the Jerzites are mentioned only here in the whole Bible, uh, but that they're mentioned with the Jeshurites and the Amalekites tells us everything we need to know. Here's what these people groups were. They're like our idea of pirates, only they lived in the deserts instead of the ocean. They would disappear into the desert, uh, and they would read, they would find some isolated band of who knows who they would just, and they would attack them and steal all their stuff. Their industry was stealing stuff. Okay, they would attack people, take all their stuff. That's what they would live off of. They would disappear back out in the desert. They would reappear and steal stuff from somebody else. That's the Amalekites. David and his men during this time of rest, they decide that they are going to foot their own bill by pirating the pirates. They start attacking these bands of Amalekites and, and other folks. And David does so incredibly violently. When David would attack someplace, he would take all their stuff and leave no survivors. He would kill Everybody. He would take of that stuff that he took, livestock and, and any, all the valuables, he would take a portion of that, take it back to Achish as kind of rent. Hey, thanks for letting us stay here and here you got something in the deal. Now, it is possible because 400 years prior, God had already told Israel that these people were supposed to be wiped out of Canaan. Uh, but that was 400 years ago when that command was given. 13 generations or so. 400 years ago, for point of reference, it was what, 1622? It's a lot of water under that bridge. It's not that God has changed but without God giving David a specific command to re-up this, is this really okay? But here's the thing that really gets me, why I think David is wrong here. David's motivation for killing all those folks is not the glory of God and the conquest of Canaan. He tells us his motivation. Or we learn David's motivation, why he killed all these people. And it's not uh, obedience to those 400-year-old commands. We'll see them next. In verse 10, we get a glimpse inside one of those trips when David goes to Achish and takes some of the rent money. Um, every, time, every time David would, would take some of the, the valuables, the livestock, the whatever back to Achish, Achish would say, wow, you got quite a spread here. Who'd you attack today? And you know what David tells him? He tells him a lie. All the places we read are places in Israel. What David tells Achish is, I've been attacking those dirty Israelites and I've been pillaging Israel and bringing you stuff from Israel. This is how David has decided to ingratiate himself to Achish the king of Gath by making him believe that I'm a full-fledged turncoat defector. I am an Israel of enemy now. Or excuse me, I'm an enemy of Israel now. None of that's true. And then, in verse 11, 
We read why David killed everyone. He wasn't wasn't passionate about the glory of God and the conquest of the promised land. He was covering his tracks. He was eliminating witnesses. Verse 11, he says, Neither man nor woman would David leave alive. Why? Because that way they couldn't come back to, to, to Gath and say, this is what David was doing. See, David was lying saying, I'm attacking the Israelites. He couldn't afford to leave any of those other people alive in case one of them made it back there and word made it back and said, hey, David's been lying to you the whole time. He's not attacking Israelites. He's attacking us. So David killed them all. Now, it it works, David's deception. It works really well. He gets to stay where he likes to stay in this time of relative peace and and security. He gets to be with his family. He and his men get to be with his families. And Achish eats this up. He believes every word of it. Achish trusted David or believed in David and said, man, he really does. He hates Israel now. He's a full-fledged Philistine. He's going to be my servant from here on out. So David's plan has worked pretty well. But like with all sin, it's really hard to control the consequences of sin. We feel like we can. We feel like we can handle it, right? I'll make sure I can keep this under control. But we can't control the consequences of sin and And here's what happens in the first two verses of chapter 28. The Philistines begin to organize their whole army. All of the different cities and towns come together. They they mass one big Philistine army and they prepare to go fight against Israel. And Achish comes to David and says, David, you've just been drafted into the Philistine army. Guess what? You now have the opportunity to be a part of this army, and you guys are going to go fight against Israel. Now, where would Achish get the idea that David would be okay with fighting against Israel? It's what David's been telling him for 16 months that he's been doing. Uh Uh-oh. All of a sudden, David's in a really tight spot. In fact, it's very possible to see David... At the end of this, he might be in worse shape than he was when he decided to go to Philistia to begin with. Why did he want to run away from Israel? What was he trying to get away from? King Saul had been pursuing him, and he's so tired of that, so he goes to the Philistines. If the Philistines find out that David's been deceiving them the whole time and making them more enemies... What if David makes the Amalekites and the Jeshurites and the Jerzites and all the otherites so mad at Philistia that they want to start fighting that he might cause the Philistines problems? So all of a sudden, David now might be pursued by Saul and pursued by the Philistines at the same time. He might have twice the trouble that he had before this chapter started. What's going to happen to David? Well, we're going to have to wait a while to find the answer to that question. But it sure looks like David's sin has just found him out. Doesn't it? 
Now, if I'm right in my sort of moral assessment of this, if I'm right and David's wrong here, what do we learn from the, f- the first major failure of our, of our hero? And by the way, if I'm wrong and David's justified, all the lessons we're going to talk about from here on out will be applicable. Just wait a few chapters into 2 Samuel. He'll fail plenty then. What do we do? What do we learn from the failure of our hero? Well, let's start here. I think it's important uh, that we admit that uh, hero worship is a bad idea. Even if it's biblical heroes that we worship, unless you're worshiping Jesus, that one's okay. Hero worship is a bad idea, and I want to submit to you this morning that, that hero worship either leads to a bigger problem or maybe comes from a problem in our hearts that's already in there that can be dangerous. Let me explain this. Admitting the sin of our biblical heroes is important. The Bible is full of people, and it's okay to call them the heroes of our faith. It is full of examples where real-life people become such good examples to us that we should follow. But those folks are made of the same stuff that you and I are made of. They are. They're just people. And so it's important that when they fail and sin, we call their failure failure and their sin sin. That's important because it's really easy. It, it, it's important to understand what kind of people God chooses, calls, equips, uses. He uses regular people, not superheroes. All of David's successes were because he was faithful to the God who has all the power. As soon as David separates himself from the God with all the power, David gets weak and gets tired and he fails. Sometimes, and a lot of us were raised with attitudes like this, but sometimes it's really easy to walk around with these attitudes, these ideas. Sometimes they're spoken, sometimes they're unspoken. We just kind of feel them. But this idea that the, the people God approves of and uses are just are the good kids. And the only way God ever will approve of me is through my behavior. That's really dangerous. God approves of and uses the good kids and he rejects and he's mad at and he punishes the bad kids. So we better try really hard to make sure we're always one of the good kids or God won't have time for us. God can't use us. He'll reject us. Those are really dangerous ideas. First, they're anti-gospel. Does God care about my behavior? Of course. Does God approve of me because of my behavior? No. God approves of me because of his behavior. His righteousness has become mine. Okay? When we start acting like, feeling like, 
teaching as if God approves of the good kids, God rejects the bad kids. The only thing we do is drive our sin underground. The only kind of culture we will make is a culture where confession gets people punished, ignored. If anyone finds out about my sin, I looked up a statistic I want you to memorize, okay? Or write this down. You got write this down. You ready? 10 out of 10 Christians still sin. Okay? When we begin to adopt attitudes though, like, you know, it says right here, it says this is right and this is wrong and I cannot fathom how anyone can read this is right and this is wrong and they can still do what is wrong. I just cannot stomach people like that. I would say, don't get a mirror. If you have one, don't walk by it because you just expose the person looking back out of there. When we, the, the gospel, praise God, but church, Christian relationships, they're not to be reserved for people with, the, with very few sins because there really aren't any. When we want to explain away the sins of our heroes, whether it be David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the sons of Jacob, or anyone else, that might be the symptom of a bigger problem. It might expose some other faults. If we have lists like David, if David's on our good guy list, and we want to explain away any of David's faults or sins... I'd be willing to bet that transfers over into our lives. It's really easy to have a good guy list and a bad guy list, isn't it? And your good guy list, it might be the folks in your family, like biological family. It might be the people in your church, your denomination. It might be your friends. It might be the, the people on, your, on our side of the political aisle. And it's really easy. The people, whoever's on our good guy list, all their sins and faults are very reasonable. We can explain those away. They're just having a bad day. Well, anyone would have done that. Well, of course. Well, of course they did that because let me tell you what. And then the people that are on our bad guy list, which is everyone that's not on our good guy list, we highlight their sins. We broadcast their sins. If we're honest, we're kind of happy about their sins because it helps justify us putting, us putting them on that list. We're glad they sinned those sins. And I treat the sins of the good guys way differently than the sins of the bad guys. If we pay attention, what will always happen over the course of our life, over many years, the people on our good guy list will shrink and shrink and shrink because we don't know how to handle real sin from real people. Hero worships a bad idea. 
having a list of good guys and a list of bad guys, excusing the sins from our good guy list, the only thing it does is it will eventually corrupt the good guys because we will excuse sin. And this whole gospel effort is supposed to be understanding how all of us who are bad guys get to look like good guys in the eyes of the good guy, right? We should be growing this list, not shrinking it. So, I think that's application one. Hero worship's a bad idea. And I, I just couldn't be more convinced. If anyone but David was the main character, there would be no debate as to whether or not this was sin in today's passage. Second, if we read discerningly, this passage will share with us a better way to approach sin in our people, in the good guy list. Probably the bad guy list too. But here's what I mean. With David in this passage, is it pretty easy to empathize with how tired he must have been? Can you imagine being on the run every day of your life from an entire army? Which, by the way, the army of your people. How tired would you be if the United States military was chasing you every day? Does that make, does that excuse what the things that David did? No. Can you understand how he could be so weak that he would fail and yet not approve of his sin at the same time? Now we're getting somewhere. Sin is not unfathomable. There's got to be a way where we can understand the failure of someone we love, empathize without, without approving of it, celebrating it, ignoring it, empowering it, enabling it. Like if we were going to sit down with David, if you were friends with David, what would you say to him in this passage? What if we sat down with David and said, Ah, oh, Dave, I cannot imagine how hard it must be to be hunted every day by your own people. Ah, oh, I know what it feels like to be, to be weak. And believe me, I know what it feels like to fail. But buddy, you've left your superpower. Your superpower is pursuing after God's heart. And right now what you're doing I don't think that's it. Last week's questions, what voices are you listening to? Was this God's direction that led you to do this stuff, David? And then what if we sat with with our people in sin and said stuff like this? Said, how can I walk with you? How can we get this thing pointed back toward what God would say is best? Not... Let's make up 10 reasons why you're not really wrong and this is someone else's fault. That's not being a friend. You may not be pointed at where God wants you, but you don't have to be there yet before I'll like you, before I'll help you. 
How can I, because I understand what it's like to, to fail, to mess up, to sin, believe me, I understand. So how can I be with you? And how can we get this boat turned back toward what we both know really is best? Is that better than standing over someone and telling them you can't believe how stupid they are they could sin like that? Or making them feel like that's what you're saying? Is it better than letting someone who's in sin think that you're actually on their side in their sin? Yeah. This passage gives us a way to see that sin can be understandable and yet wrong at the same time. And finally, by looking at David, this passage can help us uh, avoid some of our own sin by learning from David's mistake. Fatigue makes us vulnerable. It does. But we have to remember where true rest is found. When you get to that point where you are so tired, it's so easy to believe lies like, I don't care what, I don't care what the uh, consequences are. I've got to do this. It'll be better than where I'm at. No, it won't. There is no true rest that's found outside of what God says is best. There's just, there's just not. This passage reminds us biblical self-talk is really important. This, David's downfall began when he started telling himself stuff that wasn't true. From there, I believe... David made his second mistake, refusing to seek the Lord. Sometimes when we don't seek the Lord, why is it? Because we know what he's going to say. And we don't want to hear it. We go get encouragement from someone who knows and loves the Lord. We get self-talk from places like Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. We hang in there with what we know is best because God has told us. And we believe true rest only comes from him. And if you're here this morning and you are teetering on your breaking point, I want to encourage you, hang in there. David is going to learn God was ready to free him from the Saul, from the Saul thing. It's going to take a couple weeks before we see that, but David's ready to be, or excuse me, God's ready to be done with Saul. And saved, David quit just a bit too early. Heaping regret on top of fatigue is never a great idea. It never helps in the long run. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, our hero David, just got really relatable. (laughs) Because life made him tired, his fatigue made him vulnerable, he began to tell himself stuff that wasn't true, then he believed it, and he fell into sin. Boy, is that the same old story of my life, of our lives, that's been happening over and over and over.
God, thank you that you are a God that where confession starts making things better. May we have a a culture here in our families, in our church, where confession, though it's uncomfortable, can begin to make things better right away. May we have a, a culture here, Lord, where we can understand weakness and failure without celebrating it or endorsing it or enabling it. Not because we are better than someone who has sinned, but because your way is better than the sin. And we want to love one another to pursue what is best. Be glorified in us in the way we treat one another as we sin. You came to seek and save that which is lost. And it turns out we qualify. You you use the weak and the foolish to shame the strong and the wise. So we qualify to be used uh, by the one true God. We love you, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up and let's finish.